Lesson five is entitled, David, a king unlike all others. And that is obviously a direct reference to a couple lessons ago where he said Saul was a king just like all others. So clearly there's a contrast that we're going to see between Saul and David. David's amazing, Saul not so much. So we're going to be looking at chapters 16 through 20 with a lot more time being spent on chapters 16 and 17 uh, because it's just some amazing fun stuff with David and Goliath. It's a very fun story, very famous. Everybody knows about David and Goliath. It's much more than just an underdog story, however. It has huge spiritual typological connections for us as Christians in our battle against our enemies. It's really fantastic. So we're going to spend a lot more time in chapter 17 going through all of that, the typology that's involved as well. Uh, And then we're going to uh, briefly, uh, hopefully not too briefly, uh, summarize the events Uh, of chapters 18 through 20. Alrighty, so chapter 16, we are straight on the heels of Saul's rejection, rather I should say God's rejection of Saul in chapter 15 because he refused to obey the command to destroy the Amalekites, and then he just really kept digging his grave deeper and deeper, lying to Samuel, making excuses, blaming the people, doubling down on his lies and excuses, until finally, really, he doesn't really repent. He just wants to save face and asks for Samuel to go with him and all that stuff that we discussed back in in lesson four. So chapter 16 is on the heels of that story where God wants to have Samuel anoint a man after his own heart. So that brings us to chapter 16 verses one and following. Let's read verses one through five and then we'll make some comments here. All right. So verse one, the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul, seeing that I've rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go if Saul hears it? He will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice. I will show you what you shall do, and you shall anoint for me him whom I name to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded, and he came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him, trembling, and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably, I have come to sacrifice the Lord, consecrate yourselves, etc. And I'm going to go ahead and do it. All right, we'll stop right there. So here God, so we don't know exactly how much time has passed between chapters 15 and 16, probably not too much time. But God is giving Samuel some directions to basically get up and get ready. We have to move on. I always think this is such an interesting thing here where it says, you know, God says to Samuel, how long are you going to grieve over Saul? He's, Samuel is mourning for Saul's demise, his failings, his disobedience, and his punishment. I think this is really, really interesting. First in, first in the sense that God says, right, we got to move on, right? I've got great things planned. Saul's made his choice. It's time to move forward. You don't want to necessarily be wallowing in your mourning and your griefing. There comes a point where you have to wash your face and get up. I always find that really encouraging in my own life sometimes. It's just, it's time to move forward. So that's one point to talk about. Another point here is that this also makes me think of the second beatitude, right? Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Samuel is, as a a good spiritual father, as a prophet, as a judge of Israel, and, and the very man who anointed Saul, 
He's mourning over Saul's failures and sins. And that's a big part of what that beatitude is about. There's, I don't want to get into a whole digression here on the second beatitude here. But blessed are those who mourn. Mourning is those who mourn after of, of their own sin, of other sin, of sin, death, and suffering that has plaguing the world because of our disobedience. If you mourn these, these things that occur to us and the sins that we commit, we will be comforted. In other words, if you repent of your sins, you will be comforted, right? That's kind of what's going on here, I think, of Saul in my own personal reflections. He's mourning the demise of Saul, and God is comforting him, saying, get up. It's time to move on. I'm going to send you to, to the next man, the man that I have chosen for myself. I have rejected Saul. It's interesting that the word uh, for reject, God rejected Saul, is the same word uh, that is used back in chapter 8, verse 7, of how the people rejected God. I, I find that very, very fascinating. In different commentaries, like I have in your footnotes here, describe that. The word is ma'as. Uh, to reject the the people rejected the Lord and wanted a king like all the other nations. And so God ended up rejecting Saul, that king like all the other nations, because there's this whole play right there of you really need to accept God, accept his law, accept his grace in order to be, be fruitful, be fulfilled and peaceful, right? So I, I like that a lot. So God says, I've rejected him, and now it's time for you to go anoint a king for himself. I love that line. I have provided for myself a king among his sons. So Saul was a king for Israel, right? Saul was a king that the people wanted. Saul was a king like all the others. God wants a king for himself. God wants a king who loves God, who has a heart for God. And that was actually the verse that I, I really hope you highlight and block off or do whatever you're going to do in your Bible there to emphasize it. Uh, God says in chapter 13, verse 14, that uh, your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. That's the kind of, of king, the kind of king that God wants, a man after his own heart, a king for himself. And that's the proper king that the people actually need. There's a big difference between what you want and what you need. What you want isn't necessarily what you need. You know, we teach our children this all the time, at least we should. A lot of adults don't understand this very principle. And so David is going to be a king after God's own heart. It's going to be a, a king that God has set up for himself, but also certainly for the people. Now, Samuel responds to God saying, well, how can I do this? If Samuel hears about it, he's going to kill me. That's really, really interesting how Samuel is afraid of Saul. All right, now this commentary here will point out that uh, Samuel's fears that Saul might kill him anticipate the capacity for violence that Saul will demonstrate later in his life against David. And that is certainly true, by the way. <laughs> We're not even beginning to get next. The next lesson, lesson six, we'll get into all the suffering that David endures at Saul's hands and really the, the violent, murderous atrocities that Saul commits. He's a very, very fallen man. And so clearly Samuel's fears are, are proving that point. Yeah, the quote goes on to say that Saul already had such a reputation may be gleaned from the fact that the elders of Bethlehem panic when Samuel shows up. So there is this reputation here of the tyranny, uh, the, the, the murder, the violence that Saul is capable of. And that's why Samuel is afraid. That's why the Bethlehemites are afraid. And that's, that's a foreshadowing. That's a big red flag, a warning sign of the things to come in, in the second half of 1 Samuel here. So pay attention to that little key. All right, so uh, God says, don't worry about it. Here is a legitimate excuse. There's, not li there's no lying about it. It's just, you know, you, you don't have to disclose all the truth here. Just go and offer a sacrifice and invite Jesse and his sons. And that's exactly what happened. So let's read on here, verses 6 through 10. 
when they came, uh, he looked on a leaf. So, all right. So when Jesse and his sons came, we clarify that here as we're jumping back into this. Uh, when Jesse and his sons came, Samuel looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, now this is another highlight worthy verse here. The Lord said to Samuel, do not look upon his, on, upon his parents or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. Ma'as, same word, I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. That's dynamite. Verse 8, then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And then the third son, Shammai, and all seven sons are passed by here. All right, so it's interesting that when Samuel arrives to uh, to Jesse's house and Jesse presents his sons, the firstborn son being here, Eliab, Samuel makes the same mistake that we have begun to see in the past lesson, the mistake of judging by outward appearances, all right, judging by exterior appearances. That is a problem. And so Saul, if you remember, was tall, dark, and handsome. He was from a distinguished family, the tribe of Benjamin, et cetera, et cetera. And so everyone thought this is him because they just saw his outward appearances, his resume, so to speak, we were joking about, right? So it's interesting that Samuel, like he's the seer, but yet he cannot see, right? He's falling into the same mistake. He fell for the same mistake uh, that everyone fell for regarding Saul. He doesn't have the heart. And that's exactly what God is saying here. I've rejected him like I've rejected like I've rejected Saul. And we're going to see actually an indication of Eliab's character here very, very soon. He he's definitely does not have the right attitude, the right heart. So Eliab is rejected, same word like I already pointed out here. And that, that verse there, these number of verses here, verses seven and following, rather just seven, the Lord looks on the heart. Everyone else looks on the appearances. We have to be very careful. I don't want to get on this you know, soapbox here too long, but we all have to be very, very careful not to judge others by their exterior appearances. We don't know the condition of their heart. We don't know uh, what's going on inside of them. Uh, by all exterior appearances, they could look great, right? Um, but their heart is, as Jesus will say, like they're just whitewashed tombs, right? Full of dead men's bones. And in fact, that's a great little uh, analogy there. That by, by all exterior appearances, the Pharisees looked fantastic. Um, they they tithed and they followed the law and et cetera, et cetera. But they, they did not have the right heart. So we need to be careful not to make that same mistake. I, I really like these verses here because it's just a, such a little examination of conscience. For me, I think for everybody here, just to, to look at the heart. God understands the heart, and we ask for God's grace to discern properly uh, all of these things. All right, so uh, all seven sons are presented before Samuel, and God didn't <laughs> affirm any one of them. Like Not a single one of the seven are the chosen one. And so Samuel says in verse 11, are all your sons here? And this, I always find this interesting because Jesse, the dad, says, oh, yeah, you know, there, there remains the youngest. The, the Hebrew is kind of like the, uh, the runt of the family. Oh, there's the youngest. Like he's forgotten about, right? David is this forgotten son. He's the eighth and youngest son. Oh, he's just out there keeping the sheep. He's a shepherd out there. And Samuel's like, well, just go get him then, right? Send and fetch him. We're not going to sit down until he comes here. Uh, let's read on, actually. And so he sent and brought him in. He was ruddy. He had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Samuel took the horn of oil, anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. So here David is anointed. Uh, remember, the anointed one is the Mashiach, the Messiah. We talked about this uh, in great depth before when we were talking about this with Saul. 
Suffice it to say here, just as a very quick review, priests, prophets, and kings were anointed by the Spirit in the Old Testament. And uh, this is very typological of Jesus Christ, his baptism, his anointing there, our own baptism and confirmation. We are, so Jesus is capital P priest, capital P prophet, capital K king, or he's the greatest of these three things. He, these three offices, and he embodies them and perfects them perfectly, right? So uh, in, in every way, and we participate in that threefold office in our own baptism, right? Uh, to be anointed by the spirit in order to accomplish the work of God. So David here is anointed as the new king. And, and it's interesting that people will say, well, if this all happened in the presence of his brothers and, and his father and who knows who else was there, wouldn't they know immediately that he was the king and Saul's not the king? And so it would begin, you can imagine the rumors spreading as fast as possible, as, as fast as it would naturally happen that Samuel came to town and anointed David. So the one thing that I would say about that is it, it doesn't it doesn't say that Samuel made it explicit that he was anointed as king, just that he was anointed. So it leaves a little bit of room for debate as to what he is anointed for. And so maybe the explicit declaration that you are anointed the new king is withheld because Samuel did not want, number one, God didn't uh, direct that, but number two, Samuel did not want his family or David himself to be in danger. It's just an interesting thought there to keep in mind uh, that Samuel did not make a big uh, brouhaha about how he is the new king because you can imagine how fast the rumors would spread there. Um, but in any case, about his anointed, I would also point out a, a quick little point, a couple of quick little points here, that uh, the, the Ignatius Catholic Study Bible says that David enjoys an ongoing presence of the Spirit, unlike other figures whose possession of the Spirit was intermittent and temporary, like Saul and Samson and other judges there. That's really, really interesting. It does seem that when you compare David's anointing, there is a consistent presence of the Spirit as opposed to individual instances of where the Spirit came upon Samson and Samson uh, defeated the lion, right? Killed the lion in the vineyard with his own bare hands or something like that. That the Spirit is with David continually. I think that's really, really interesting. Why is that the case? I think it's because David's heart is with God continually, right? David never worships other idols. There's never any shenanigans regarding worship uh, or improper worship. Naturally, we'll talk later on about David's sins, but David's heart is completely for God. And so God is with David at all times. All right. So I think that's really interesting to point out. Also, another thing, uh, the good classic uh, commentary from Hadok points this out. Uh, in comparing the two anointings between Saul and David, if you go back to Saul's anointed an anointing here, there was a little fragile vial that was used, like a like a little like a little cup or sauce or something like that, right? A little vial. Um, but here it's a horn that is used for David. And so this fantastic little connection that I love says that a, a fragile vial was not used, but a horn. Why? To denote the duration and abundance of David's reign. End quote. I, I love that because a vial is fragile, it breaks. And so it indicates that the kingdom of Saul, when he was anointed, is going to be fragile and ultimately it's going to be broken. It's not going to endure. That's not the same thing with David. David's kingdom is 
strong and powerful. It, it lasts forever. We'll study the covenant with David later on here, uh, but it lasts forever. And there's abundant graces uh, that's going to be poured out upon Israel and upon all nations through his kingdom and so on and so forth. So I just I just wanted to bring that to your attention, this great little contrast between the, the simple, fragile, a vial that's used to anoint Saul, indicating his kingship versus the horn. And by the way, a horn in scripture is a symbol of power and might. So I just, I just like that contrast. It's very beautiful. Alrighty. So here he is anointed. And also I'll point out one other thing. He seems to go right back to, uh, to taking care of the sheep. He's a shepherd. Like he doesn't just go run off and, you know, start saying I'm king and here I am, you know, Samuel anointed me. He goes back to his daily duties. I like that a lot. I think there's a lot of typology for us as well, where we're anointed uh, and by through baptism and confirmation. Uh, we're Christians. We participate in the threefold office of priest, prophet, and king uh, of, of Christ's threefold office. And yet we have our obligations to our daily responsibilities, and we must pursue those and do that well. That's what David does. He just goes back to uh, taking care of the sheep. And I think that's a really beautiful thing. So uh, in looking at this, I just wanted to put into this next section of your notes here, just a kind of a biographical snapshot then, uh, an assessment of David, right? Uh, and how, who he is up to this point, and just kind of some interesting little trivia, trivia points to discuss about him. Uh, first and foremost, his name, David means beloved by God. And we're going to see all kinds of typological connections between David and Jesus. Jesus is the new David, the new son of David. He is the new king of Israel and the new king of the world and all this stuff. It's beautiful, but even the name itself is a type of Christ. David means beloved by God. Jesus is constantly called the beloved son of the father in the baptism, transfiguration, and others. So Jesus is the beloved son, meaning he is the true David of the father. And I like that a lot too here. So as you look at this entire story of his anointing by Samuel, he is this, this son that's forgotten in the fields. He's taking care of the sheep, right? He wasn't even called to the party. I kind of kind of find that a little offensive. It makes me think of other ways in which David is treated, as we're going to actually see in chapter 17. I don't think that his older brothers treat him all that well. Uh, the Navarre Bible points out here that, uh, quote, the narrative, the narrative emphasizes that David does not in any way merit his election. He is a nobody from a family of no importance. No genealogy is provided apart from the name of Jesse, his father. He is the youngest of his brothers, and like the rest of his family, he works as a shepherd. He doesn't come from a noble or military or priestly family, and he could have no claim to be anointed king, end quote. I, I like that assessment here, and so I want to bring out a couple of things from this. So first, he's a nobody, right? God likes to work with the nobodies. He likes to work with the humble, the unknown, but those that are faithful to him. Because it just proves, and anybody who is in a situation where God works through them, they know, like, you know what, this had to have come from God. God likes working with the nobodies to show that all things come from his hand. We're nothing uh, except we are instruments in his hand. So that's the first point. God likes to work with the humble, the unknown, the faithful, especially those who have a heart after God. We've already pointed this out back in chapter 13, 14, and here chapter 16, verse 7, God looks at the heart, and David's heart belongs to God. David's heart is lifted up to God in, in worship all the time. In fact, he, he epitomizes, I believe, the great Shema prayer. If you remember back in Deuteronomy chapter 6, Moses says, love the Lord your God with all of your heart. And that's what David is doing. So in other words, David is a perfect role model for obedience to the law. 
by loving God and loving neighbor, he fulfills the law. And I think that's one of the reasons why God picks him. Okay. Uh, this point about him being the youngest of his brothers, to be specific, he is the eighth son. All right, there's a couple of things about this. So eight is the number of new beginnings, of restoration, of rejuvenation, of new creation. Eight's very significant. Remember, Hebrew boys, Israelite boys are circumcised on the eighth day because that's the day that they're incorporated into the, the body, the, the, the kahal, the assembly of Israel. All of that is connected to baptism. In fact, I mean, we could talk about a lot of this, but there are eight people on the ark, all right, because the ark is a whole symbol, a whole typological narrative of baptism, of washing away of, of sin and corruption and all this kind of stuff, right? Uh, Jesus rose on the eighth day. And I, in fact, I can't even open up that can of worms, uh, but he's on, raised on the third day, but he's raised on the first day of a new week, which consecutively is the eighth day and so on and so forth. So day, what's significant about this is him being the youngest son, the eighth son precisely means that God is going to use him to bring about a renewal, a restoration of Israel. And that is certainly true through his covenant that God makes with David. David receives incredible blessings through the covenant that God establishes with him in 2 Samuel. We'll get there eventually. Um, but that is an incredible moment of restoration of new beginnings that God will make with his people. Okay, so even the fact that he's an eighth son is very significant. Um, he's probably an oldish teenager, right? There's a lot of debate. Is he 15, 16 years old? Is he 17, 18? In that range, give or take, okay? He's an oldish teenager at that, at that point. Um, the, another theme about him being the youngest is that it touches upon another uh, huge biblical theme of God passing over some unworthy older brother figure, some uh, unrighteous older brother for a younger brother. Okay, this happens all the time. And I go through this, especially with Genesis. Genesis is a big book where this occurs. Cain and Abel, well, Abel is the older, Isaac, Ishmael, Jacob, Esau, Ephraim, and Manasseh. Then even in the book of Exodus, uh, Moses is the younger brother, Aaron is the older brother, yet Moses is chosen, and so on and so forth. Here, consistent with that theme, God passes over the older brother, Aliab. God rejects him, and we'll see an indication of his character very soon, for David, who is the younger brother who has a heart after God. Okay? So uh, there's some reflections about him being the youngest. Uh, clearly, he's a courageous shepherd. His courage we're going to see later on in chapter 17 of him fighting the lions and tigers and bears. Oh, my. <laughs> uh, so we'll see that here pretty soon. I have an insight I want to share with you about that. But him being a shepherd is also another big biblical theme. God loves shepherds. There's Abel. There's the, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, there's, there's Moses, and there's others as well throughout the Old Testament shepherds, it's, it's good preparation, right, of taking care of the flock and being willing to endure adversities and trials and tribulations and fighting off predators. It's good training to be a king, okay, to shepherd the flock of Israel. So I love that connection. And it, of course, it points forward typologically to Jesus. Jesus is the true good shepherd. Uh, there's a lot to say about this. I have a couple of references in your notes. We can't get into it for the sake of time. But in Ezekiel 34, there's the famous long chapter about how the shepherds of Israel are corrupt and that God himself 
will shepherd his people by sending his servant David. And all that's fulfilled in Christ. So in John chapter 10, the long discourse about how he is the good shepherd, he is fulfilling Ezekiel 34 and all these other references of the Old Testament. He is the new David, the new Moses, and all of these things by shepherding his flock, Israel, and others who are called to participate in that flock, which would be the Gentiles. Okay? So there's some significant things about David being a shepherd. Also, David's genealogy. It doesn't talk about his genealogy here in 1 Samuel. If you go to Ruth, uh, you can see that you know he descends from Ruth. He is his, Ruth's, uh, is it his great-great-grandson, something like that, okay? He descends from Ruth, who's a, a Moabite. And then you know also in Jesus' genealogy, as well as in, in Chronicles, that David descends from Rahab, who is another foreign woman, and she's also a prostitute, a sinner. So the fact that David's genealogy includes these sinners and Gentiles is really significant because David is going to be not just a king for Israel, but a king for for all nations. There's going to be other nations that are subjected to the Davidic kingdom, all pointing forward again to Jesus. So Jesus, the ultimate king, son of David, he descends from men and women, from Israelites, from Gentiles, from saints and from sinners, because he's going to be the king of all peoples and all nations and tongues. Okay? And I will point out one more little thing here. We were joking about how Saul is tall, dark, and handsome. I made the joke that uh, he is the Chosen People's Magazine Sexiest Man Alive. Uh, and then Aliyah probably would have been next year's edition and all this kind of stuff. But David himself is also handsome, right? He's attractive. I think that's appropriate for, for the king, right? For the king of Israel. So he's ruddy. Commentaries will say that he probably had red hair. So maybe he had some Irish genes in there somehow. <laughs> I'm not sure. But he's, he's ruddy. He's attractive. Um, he's handsome. And, and that, I think that's kind of worthwhile pointing out. Okay, so uh, David, you can't overestimate David's importance here as king. This is just the very, very beginning of his kingship and his anointing. And we're going to see all kinds of great things come uh, to the forefront as we go through his story. All right.